thanks so much for joining. Speaking of making healthcare work for you, I'm Stephanie Fields, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoor Gupta, and Karen Conley, who is the VP of Clinical Services at Kairos, and she's also a former nursing executive who is trained in oncology. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you for having me. Of course, we're very excited to talk to you. So Karen, you're really passionate about access to care and making sure that people are not experiencing barriers. Why does this matter to you so much? Well, you know, I think it's really important because we want to make sure that all patients get the right time of care, the type of care. And I think it's really difficult for patients to find care right now. Um, even in, even before COVID, it was, it was difficult for patients to find the right time of care. And I think if you think about healthcare and the types of care that's offered now, it's a lot different than it was years ago. Um, before you'd have generalists and you'd have some specialists, you'd have an orthopedic surgeon per se, per se. And so you say you have an issue, an orthopedic issue, you go to the orthopedic surgeon. Today, we have foot and ankle specialists. We have hand specialists. We have spine specialists. There are so many iterations of every specialty and as a subspecialty now that it's really hard for patients to figure out what type of provider they should see. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important that health systems figure out how to make that search and match opportunity work better for patients and families. And that's one thing that we're really trying to fix at Kairos. Well, that's really interesting. I never thought about that, that there are so many additional specialties now, but thinking about it, I know a few people are who are in med school now and neither one of them are going for anything, you know, broad. It's both very specialized things. And it's so fascinating because I never thought about how challenging that could be, but I do have, um, you know, similar experiences that with that in my own life, there was a time a year or two ago that I had like this weird smell of smoke in my nose. And I could not figure out who in the world I was supposed to go see. I was like, do I see an ENT? Do I see my primary care? Do I see, I think I ultimately ended up at neurology. I mean, it ended like super weird. I would have never expected that. So you're totally right. That's a big challenge, yeah. especially when people might be hesitant to get care to begin with. There really isn't great data um, to really describe what providers do. Um, for example, you know, working as a health system executive for years, there wasn't one place where you can find information about providers. And as I said, things change. So even as, um, as a provider, you know, in the olden days, you'd say, oh, I know my group of orthopods that I can refer to, but even the providers don't know their colleagues anymore. Mm -hmm. um, hospitals are growing. There's a lot more of um, the integrated networks of, of colleagues that they're adding to these systems really to be able to offer more care, but, you know, no longer can and the, you know, your primary care say, yep, this is a perfect person to take care of your left finger issue. Um, and so, so that's a problem. I think, you know, the other problem is too, as you think about these access center agents that are in, in hospitals, um, they have typically, and I've been in a lot of them, <laughs> they typically have binders full of information about, you know, Dr. Jones doesn't want to see patients Tuesday afternoons during a Red Sox game. Um, and so like that, you know, those details are all on sticky notes and in binders. And um, so, so we, you know, in all health systems use different things to try to fix that. Um, so we're really trying to figure out how can we get all this rich information in one place so that data can be syndicated. And so when you call your access center agent, because you want to schedule an appointment, you get a result or an appointment on the first try. We have, I think over 40%, we did a study of about a thousand patients and 40% of those patients still want to use the phone to schedule an appointment. They don't want to go online and they, they don't want to book online, which is okay. We have to offer different 
opportunities for people to schedule appointments. But what's interesting to me is that over 50% of the time, their problem wasn't resolved on the first call. And so, you know, I think that's, it's really important to think about how can we surface this information so not only can patients find what they want, but if they, whatever route they use, they can be matched with the right provider and receive an appointment and have that resolved on the first call. Yeah, that's fascinating, Karen. It's, it's so interesting what you're saying that a lot of people still want to use the phone call, but yet the whole online access industry is booming. So can you speak a little bit to that? Like, what is the kind of growth you've seen in the demand for being able to do all of these scheduling things online? That's a great question. Um, you know, we've done this study with over a thousand um, uh, patients for the past four years. And that number of patients that really would like to go online and use that direct booking option has grown every single year. And as you can imagine, it's different by generation. So we break it up by generation, mm -hmm. but we are finding that even the boomers now incrementally are increasing their, their uh, level of comfort in booking online. It's not large numbers. You can imagine the Gen X and the millennials are, they only want to do it online, mm -hmm. um, but it's starting to change. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things that we looked at is that, you know, coronavirus really changed access in a way where a lot of patients receive virtual care for the first time. And, you know, as, as a health system leader, I mean, that's something that I was trying to change in, in the health system for a long time and, and find out how we can make that work because there are a lot of appointments out there that you can, you know, use this type of medium to actually have your needs addressed. Um, and I think, you know, there are lots of reasons for years and years that, um, you know, the reimbursement models didn't match that type of care and, and health systems really couldn't afford to invest in that because they weren't being reimbursed for that work. I really hope that the changes with coronavirus are going to stick mm -hmm. and, you know, so far so good. Is yeah, it possible absolutely. to get preventive care through virtual care? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is. I mean, I think it depends on what you're talking about. Um, but I think there are a lot of, you know, one of the big things that we've seen is that we have, um, over 21,000 terms and conditions and treatments in our library that we map to providers. And so we're able to really look at this rich search data and see what patients are doing. And so um, if we look across our 600 hospitals and over 260,000 physicians um, and nurse practitioners, uh, we found that the terms that patients are using have really changed during coronavirus. And one of the, the big um, themes that we've seen are those around mental and behavioral health. Now we know that that was an issue before coronavirus, but just adding a pandemic on top of that and really stifling this access to healthcare did not help. And so I think that's one type of preventative service that can be delivered in part virtually um, through counseling, through just talk therapy and, and things like that. I think those are, those are great options and we're working with health systems to figure out how can we make sure they're surfacing enough of those options. Um, for patients. So that's, that's one piece. I also think that if you think about all of this um, technology that's available now, I mean, people are remotely, you know, the Apple Watch remotely monitoring their blood pressure, their pulse, all this data can be sent into their providers. And so those annual checkups that are just well visits that, you know, you don't have any comorbidities and you're just having your checkup, or you know, those that are be being monitored for conditions where the vital signs are really important, using that type of technology, we can make sure those are um, still safe visits and they're getting what they need out of it, but on a virtual platform that's convenient for them and, and convenient for the provider. Mm -hmm. So you could get labs, you could get uh, input from the iWatch, uh, you could monitor a lot of things. Do you worry at all about the physical exam component of what might get missed right now? Uh, 
you know, a year has gone by, but if three years go by and people still don't get an in-person uh, visit, other than missing that, you know, potential small mass or lesion that, that should have gotten detected earlier. Of course, I think as a clinician, I have to worry about that. I think mm -hmm. that, um, you know, coronavirus uh, really forced us to this major overcorrection in the amount of virtual care we're using just because we didn't have a choice. And so I think now it's the job of health systems and providers to figure out how much do we rotate back on that? And, and what types of things do we keep as virtual because we don't think they're high risk to have virtually. You know, one of the things we're working um, a lot with our customers on are, are, is that urgent care visit. Um, and so, you know, urgent care is just everything and anything. And there are certain things with urgent care that you can schedule virtually and then declog the urgent care centers themselves by offering mm -hmm. those things. And I think that some of the urgent care centers we're working with now are really starting to hone in on that list of procedures and treatments um, mostly, you know, not necessarily procedures, but, you know, treatments and, and diagnoses that they can actually do virtually. And, um, uh, you know, we're adjusting that list. So when patients are searching for that care, they're, um, they are presented with the option to do it virtually or in person and can make that choice. It'd be interesting if maybe there ends up being a set of guidelines saying, okay, you have to be treated for your primary care um, appointment every other year in person mm -hmm. or some other sort of guideline like that so that you're you do have a baseline on them in person and that you can double check make sure nothing's getting missed like a porv said i absolutely think that that's how it will all you know be sorted out in the end um but it was great to have access to this technology during this time for sure so karen are you folks helping your the health systems figure out those triage protocols or are you just helping them implement the, whatever it is that they've created uh, we are trying to help them figure those out. And I think mm -hmm. because we have exposure to so many health systems, we're able to share best practices that we learn from other health systems too, where, you know, these health systems might not have exposure to that type of configuration. So with our um, search widget, um, we are able to overlay not only this clinical taxonomy. So when a patient goes in and searches for something, I'll, I'll give you a really good example, because this is my favorite one. So someone looking for diabetes care, we obviously want to make sure we're sending them to the endocrinologist that specializes in, in, in diabetes. And so we were working with a customer down south and we, you know, patients don't always search the same way that clinicians think. And so we have to make sure we make it friendly. And so they said, well, you don't have the sugars. What we've done in our mapping is added all those synonyms to it. So no matter what a patient types in, mm -hmm. they are gonna find the right provider. Um, so I think that's what health systems really have to think about is that, um, you know, I wish we could read the minds of all these patients as they're going through and searching for their healthcare, but we can't. So we need to figure out mm -hmm. how to express it in a way that they understand, mm -hmm. um, and also help it, you know, match to the right provider. And, you know, it's, it's satisfaction for the patient because they get the right provider the first time, but also for the provider. I mean, there's a high level of burnout with physicians and, and advanced practice nurses these days. And some of that burnout comes when their panels are filled with patients that really their colleagues should be seeing um, because of this hyper-specialization. So by, you know, making those matches right up front for the providers too, you know, they are more satisfied and they are really happy that they're taking care of those patients that they are trained to see. Another example is, you know, when we look, when we started looking at health systems um, and we, you know, patients have to wait a long time to get appointments and there are many reasons, but we find that over 20 to 40% of appointments within health systems go unused. And it's because health systems don't really have great processes to make sure those slots are filled. And there are many reasons. I mean, one is what we already talked about is that 
providers don't always know all these specialists exist to refer to. Another one is kind of that Dr. Famous thing where, you know, the word of mouth travels and everyone wants to see Dr. Famous, but Dr. Famous might have a colleague that is as skilled as she is. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a way to surface those appointments so that patients can be seen sooner. So we do have great business rules to put on top of this search. So if we're adding, like, say we're looking for a primary care provider, we've added a new primary care provider to a group we want to fill their panel, we can make them show up first in the search results. That's really fascinating. Uh, it's the way you were describing it just feels like you're taking a system that everybody thinks is so constrained. There's not enough doctors, not enough nurses, not enough hospital beds. And yet with your uh, insights, you're able to go in and actually find all that, all of that unused capacity essentially and help make that visible you know, to, to uh, the leadership as well as to the patient so they can get better care. Uh, I haven't really thought about it that way before. Yeah, you know, we were founded on the whole concept of our, our physician founder, Dr. Graham Gardner, used the um, analogy of the movie Moneyball and the concept of Moneyball. Mm -hmm. And so using statistics to really make sure that everyone's, um, their, everyone's skills are really uh, matched with the right provider or the right, you know, pitcher or batter in, in the baseball scenario. But for us, we're trying to do that with patients and providers. And so using data and statistics to really make sure that in the background we're providing the right match. And so, you know, I think another industry that we really looked at is, and you can relate, everyone can relate to this now, but, you know, back in the 90s, um, four out of 10 seats on any flight going anywhere were empty. Um, and, it, and they had a whole revolution where they really developed the Sabre system, which was their underlying data management platform that ended up being Travelocity and Kayak. And so now we can do that by looking across different provider networks and different electronic health records. It doesn't matter what electronic health record the provider uses. You know, we're looking across all those systems to find the best match for the patient. What can people do if they don't have an online system that is optimized the way that Kairos is, and they're trying to find these open slots? And like you said, many of them are open. How do people get to the right person and make sure that they're filling those slots? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, you know, it, so say um, you don't have the electronic version, but you, you call to an access center. I think it's really being specific about what type of care you need. And your neighbor may have told you to use Dr. So-and-so, but I think it's always important if you hear that Dr. So-and-so doesn't have an appointment for six months, ask that question. Does that, do they have another colleague that does the same thing? Um, in that as expert in whatever care I'm looking for. Um, that really helped the access center agent to really dig a little deeper and not focus just on that one provider you've asked for. So it's helpful for you to be able to describe exactly what you're looking for and the type of care you're looking for to get that match. I think it's also important really to, if you're having trouble accessing care in your health system, to have that conversation with your primary care provider and really talk to them about the struggles you may have had trying to get either an appointment with them or appointment within their health system. And, you know, I also think it's really important to make sure that when you get a patient satisfaction survey, to fill it out and to be honest about it. And that's, you know, it's not the be all and end all, but it is one important tool that all health systems use to make incremental changes to their care and make care better. Um, it's a piece of data that we actually surface on our provider profiles because we found that patients, when they have access to ratings and reviews, they are there's a nine times uh, higher chance they're gonna click and, and um, select that provider to make an appointment with. 
And it's just because I think as a society, we're so used to seeing ratings and reviews with everything else that we do. We want to see it with our providers as well. We want to see what other patients think about them and how they're rating their care before we make an informed decision on who we want to see. I totally agree. I definitely, I look at that and I search their profiles. I want to read all the pros, all the cons, everything people have to say before I make a decision. And then I narrow it down and usually end up asking somebody who's answering the phone or somebody else in that office, because I want to know, I do not just want to blindly pick somebody. I want to find somebody that's a good fit. And like you said, sometimes you might overlook somebody for one reason or another who actually is an amazing fit. So I think that's really cool. But something that you mentioned before we started recording was that you're working on creating a patient advisory council, which is really important and exciting to you. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So through my health system leadership experience, um, every hospital or health system I worked at, I either created or improved a patient and family advisory council because I really feel like having patients actually sit at the table as health system leaders are making decisions is really important. It's different than filling out a satisfaction survey. It's really provide a patient sitting there at the table and saying, I really don't think that you should change um, the way that the patient flow works through this clinic, because this, this is, these are the challenges I'm going to have as a result of that. And so, you know, I think as providers, we think we can see through the patient's eyes, but we can't. We need the patients right there next to us participating in their care and helping us make decisions about their care. And so I've just learned so much from patients and families over the years in health systems. Um, my next step is really to make a, uh, create this patient and family advisory council for our healthcare software company. I mean, we're building tools to help patients get access to the care that they need. And I think it's really important to have patients on a panel that understand what our company does, what products we offer, what um, moves we are making to create new solutions and having them give us feedback before we start going out there and investing in engineers time and selling to health systems a solution that may not work. And so I think by having the patient sitting right there at the table with us and helping us make those decisions will actually help us more quickly, hopefully, fix access across the country. I think in any organization, having a patient advisory council or a similar you know, user advisory council is always going to be beneficial because it helps build trust and it shows that the people who are providing the care to them or the service to them care about what the person experiencing it is actually going to have to deal with. Right. Right. You know, another piece that we're really looking at is um, accessibility. You know, over 57 million Americans, according to the U.S. Census, have a, some type of disability across our country. That's a lot of people. And of that, 90% of them can't see or hear digital information, which is just, it's nuts thinking about this. You think about this huge segment of the population that even if we create these really great digital solutions, they're not going to be able to access them. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're doing now is really working on to make sure that the products we deliver are accessible. So for someone that has uh, low hearing, that any video that we produce has closed captioning automatically enabled. So they don't have to figure out how to enable it. It's there. Um, for those that are low sighted, is it making sure that use of a screen reader, which is available on most platforms, like the Apple platform has a screen reader that anyone can enable, um, that as they're navigating their, their website, there's a, there's a voice that reads every single thing that they're seeing. And so making sure that the day that we're serving up, actually the screen reader can read all of it so the patient can find the right care. 
Um, also thinking about, you know, physical disabilities and, and, and getting into um, health systems and getting into other care sites is there aren't a lot of health systems or anywhere that really does a great job of really in detail describing what those physical enablements are within any site that you're locating. So are there bariatric chairs? Like that's what I'm worried about. I'm a bariatric, I'm a large patient. I need a large chair. I know that. I don't want to be embarrassed and not fit on a chair. Are those chairs available at the health system where I'm going? I'm in a wheelchair. How, what are the things that I'm going to have to be challenged with navigating getting in to get to see my appointment? So being able to use those as data points and service those so when patients are doing their um, investigation, they can see that those things are available will help them actually make even a more informed um, decision when choosing healthcare. So that's, you know, I, one of the stats I just read was that today one in four 20 year olds of today will have some type of disability by the time they retire. Oh, and, wow. and which is astounding to think about. And I think mm -hmm. we have to also think that not all these disabilities are permanent. You think about someone that has eye surgery, all right, they're gonna have a visual impairment that probably won't be permanent, but they still need to navigate digital information, you know, during that time when they do have that impairment. So um, that's one thing that I, that I worry about a lot in, in really in trying to figure out how we can use our platform to really make accessible care for everybody. That's really fascinating. I don't usually, in my head, when I think access to care and the barriers, I usually think of things of not having a computer or not having a car, you know, the actual tangible things that you don't have that's limiting your access. But it's really a valid point. Like you said, the bariatric chair is something that's so basic that it could really just deter somebody from getting care. Right. Or could make it challenging if they go, maybe they, you know, have a knee issue also, and they don't have a place to sit because there's not a chair. That's really, really such a great point. Yeah. And on that topic, that's what I was wondering, uh, Karen, it's fascinating that you're thinking about those things that um, I'm, I feel so hopeful that there's an advocate for us out there. And I guess the question is for a health system that's using your system, would a user then be able to go in and put in some filters and say, I want a place that has bariatric chairs or handicapped uh, access or whatever it is that they're looking for? That's that's absolutely the concept. Now they can um, currently, can they can put a lot of filters in. If they want a female provider speaking a certain language, they can put those types of filters in. Mm. But we're moving towards, instead of finding a provider, to finding care. Um, and so I think, you know, Stephanie, one of the things you talked about was preventative care. And one of the things we picked up this year is, you know, getting those preventative care type exams are really difficult. Um, and a lot of times because they require a referral or an order, mammography is one of those things that doesn't require a referral. And so we've set up, um, you know, ways to, um, in the back end, make it convenient, not only for patients, but for the health systems to schedule mammography um, tests. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is like this whole access to care as opposed to a provider is layering in all those other things that go into finding the care that you need. And one of them is the physical, um, you know, constraints or hopefully access involved in every site that you're looking for. You've said that in your current role, you actually feel that you're able to influence access to care more than you were when you were actually practicing. How, why do you think that it's so much more impactful what you're doing right now? Well, I think, you know, I've worked for really small and large health systems and really feel like I've been able to, um, in, you know, impose changes and make changes that have helped patients and families. However, now we're developing systems and I have influence over those systems that impact care across the entire country. And so being able to make one change like this focus on disability accessibility, um, 
when we roll this out and we have those changes made within our platform, every single one of our customers will benefit from that. Um, and so being able to make those widespread changes um, is not something I could ever do in a health system role. So it's been really rewarding to be able to kind of be a pioneer and really help pave that pathway to fix access across the country. Yeah, how exciting. That's uh, so tremendous. I can't believe that you're now working at the cutting edge of all of this stuff from way back when we used to struggle in the hospital setting. What about the folks that are not able to get that access? Um, is there another tool that it could be available for them that also helps them understand, you know, which providers in their area they might be able to look to? Yeah, I think that, you know, we find when we, we look at the, the studies we've done with patients is that really using the internet, I think that's, that's huge. It's just, you know, basic Google searches on these providers. Um, you know, what we try to do with our health systems is really um, use Google Analytics and Google, Google Tag Manager, which I, as a nurse, I'm just learning all this stuff. So I'm not an expert for sure, but to try to promote those providers that have those features. And so just going through an organic Google search, you can find out a lot of information on our provider to help you make a decision, even if your health system is not engaging in the solution that we have. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, moving forward that our goal is as a company is to be kind of that, um, all the um, plumbing and the piping um, with across the whole health system to feed, um, you know, access to care. So it doesn't really matter to us if somebody else is the search, you know, widget that's on the site, or there's another, you know, platform that someone's coming from. But if we could have a single source of truth for all provider data across the country that can then be taken and syndicated to however it needs to be used, mm -hmm. I think we can, we can get closer to solving this problem. You said before that people are delaying care partially I'm sure because of COVID, but also because of the access to care barriers that they may experience. How do all of those things play into helping lessen the trend of people delaying care? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think that, you know, really making it as easy as possible to find patients to, to find care, I think is important because any delay could be lead to other comorbidities and other complications that are just going to be, um, you know, detrimental to their health. And so if we can make it easier and remove those barriers to, you know, the types of location, the access to location, the ease of which you can get your appointment, there are a lot of excuses that's easy for all of us as human beings to leverage when there are things that maybe we don't like to do. I don't, I don't know a lot of people that love going to the doctor. They just, it, you know, it's not a fun thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. And so if we can remove all those barriers and really make it easy, hopefully we can prevent further complications down the road and really help improve the health of Americans across the country. I think uh, you've laid out a tremendous vision. You've covered the gamut from uh, connecting access to mental health, behavioral health, uh, clinician burnout. It's just amazing. Unused capacity. I mean, I'm not sure what part of the health system you're not touching. Uh, give us a sense of, you know, obviously I feel a lot of hope and inspiration from what you're doing. What is your sense of where the industry's at and when you think that this will actually just become the norm? Because of all the forced changes with this pandemic, we're going to get there a lot faster than they would have. We were talking about this in 2019, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think it just forced us to really think about how we can make things easier for patients. And, you know, health systems are worried now. I think the health systems that had tons and tons of patient volume because of coronavirus don't have it anymore and now are looking for it and trying to find different ways to support filling those panels up again. And so, Again, I think if there's one thing good that came out of 2020, it could be this, and that mm -hmm. our 
pathway to really improve this problem is going to be just exponentially faster than it would have been. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Apoor, for co-hosting with me. And thank, thank you me. all for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.